Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible people from around the world. I love to attract the very best of leaders, you know, people who are genuinely uh, can see are practicing human-centered leadership wherever I go. My next guest, I'm particularly excited because he's a police officer. He's a chief superintendent with the College of Policing. And I've been watching Dave for a while now, and I resonate so strongly with everything that he says. It's a breath of fresh air. So, David, welcome onto the show. It's honestly, we've been trying to plan this for a while now. It's great to finally get you here. And it's good to be here. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to the chat. Thank you. Like with all our guests, uh, I always end up having five minute conversations just before we start, get to know each other. But we've ended up having like a, a 40 minute conversation, Dave. <laughs> it's been great just catching up on what's happening in policing. But one of the big things happening in policing this week, only a few days ago, we had the Casey review, Baroness Casey review into the Metropolitan Police, uh, which talks about, you know, misogyny, racism, essentially the, the culture of the Metropolitan Police. Uh, but I think it goes beyond uh, the Metropolitan. Uh, you know, this, this, this has got to be symbolic of the whole of the police service across uh, England and Wales, and probably even Scotland, I guess. Yeah, and it's been it's been a really um, tough week to be uh, a police officer, um, regardless of where you are. Um, mm. The Casey report focuses on the Met, but um, you are right in saying that these issues transcend. I think one police organisation in the UK, and I think we'd be very naive to think that um, that is the case. So, I I have been personally disappointed when I have have looked through the report. Um, the vast, vast majority of police officers will feel the same way. They'll be disappointed. They'll be upset. And I think what it's what it's done once again to policing is it's it's held a mirror up to the service, and none of us particularly like what we see. And rather than this simply being another damning report into policing, and unfortunately over the 30 years service I've had, there have been a number, um, we really need to use this as a catalyst for change. Uh, like you, you know, um, I've been involved in policing in one way or another uh, for the nearly four decades now, and um, I've seen many of these reports, you know, right from the Scarman report in the early 80s through to McPherson and Stephen Lawrence uh, through to this one. Um, but actually, there's not much different being said in this report than there has been in other reports. Uh, the one thing that I think is important to, to stress here is the individuals and the behaviours is not an endemic thing. It, this is not, you know, 
uh, it's not a rampant virus throughout the entire police service because the vast, vast majority of the people that I have worked with in my time in policing have been some of the most dedicated, motivated and, uh, and compassionate individuals that you can care to meet. But of course, in any organisation, like with any organisation, uh, we, we get those individuals who are the, not just bad apples, I think it softens it when we say bad apples, they are they're, they're incredibly bad individuals who are in the wrong organisation uh, with an incredible amount of power. And that's what we've seen over the last several months with some of the cases in the Met, haven't we? Um, so I think there's two issues for me here. And again, w- this transcends beyond policing for me. This this can be going on in any single organisation. There are two issues for me. One is about rooting out these bad apples who are, you know, by any other definition, committing gross misconduct or criminality even. Uh, and the other issue is around the culture that allows some of those individuals to hide or to evolve. What do you think the, the key issues are here that allow these individuals to fester in organisations? I think both issues that you mentioned there, which are obviously very closely related, um, come down to one thing, and that's that is leadership. Culture is driven by leadership, yeah. and policing talks about the importance of leadership and values-based leadership, and all these things are very easy to say and describe, and articulate across a wider organisation because I've seen it many times in my career where we talk about here are our organisational values, Mm. here are the values that we expect our officers and staff and our leaders to display. But sadly, what policing proves, not just policing, quite sure other other, um, sectors and organisations are in a similar position, is that there is a disconnect, clearly, between what we talk about in terms of values, personal leadership values, and what we actually go forward and convey and deliver as leaders within policing. Because it's quite apparent that these issues, and there are some absolutely horrid, devastating findings in Casey's report, these issues do not happen overnight. They're, they they take a long time um, to embed in an organisation, and and to me that is a symptom of at best incons- inconsistent standards of leadership, at worst poor leadership. One of the things that you've touched upon there is values, and I know. Uh, in my time, how many times we have talked about organisational values. Uh, I recollect where, you know, we used to have what we call the annual planning seminar in my old force where we went disappeared for two days. Anybody from inspector level upwards right up to the chief officer level, they, we all went away and we thrashed out what the important values and strategic priorities were for our organisation over the next year. And so I think a lot of thought went into the values um, but holding people to account against those values, I think that's where we missed a trick. Um, so often we would hold people to account against some competency framework, as you remember, with uh, we make it really mechanistic and, and process-driven. 
but actually holding people to account against values might be really, really powerful. What do you think on that? For me, that that is the absolute necessary step. I don't think there is any point in having values that the organisation have developed in consultation um, more often than not with its internal workforce. And, and if they're going to do it right, should be doing it with, with external stakeholders and communities. Um, but what absolutely needs to happen there is a mechanism of socialising those with the organisation. And I think that um, we have got better at that. But we also need to tie those values into our sort of day-to-day and the behaviours that we expect of our of our police officers and police staff, sticking with the, the police profession here. And what I mean by that is that if people are planning to progress in the organisation, if they want promotion, if they want lateral development, they're going to have to signpost and prove to the organisation and the leadership within the organisation and demonstrate in evidence that they understand the values and more that they can convey a sense that they have actually demonstrated those values because particularly in leadership roles, and when I talk about leadership and policing, I'm talking about frontline supervision, sergeants, inspectors. If it's not happening at that level, then something's going to go wrong. And, you know, from all the, the negative um, examples, um, including the, the, the Casey review, we, we hear time after time that there's a failure of leadership at those frontline supervision levels. And for me, if you're talking about demonstrating value, organisational values and personal leadership values, and yes, the two, the two are, 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 are very similar, um, we have to be holding our leadership to account. So what you're saying really is that um, values should really be sitting at the heart of any organisation, um, whether it's a police service or elsewhere. The values should sit at the very, very heart. And actually we should measure uh, our leaders' capability, not just against some kind of a competency framework, but against the values. And I mean, I'm sure you'll agree, but the higher up you get into any leadership role, the more the values become uh, important because we want to make sure that we've got value-driven uh, individuals leading the organisation much more strategically. It becomes less about technical skills. Uh, and I know that, you know, in policing, we have gold commanders and silver commanders, and there is some technicality involved in there, some training. I, I was one, I'm sure you are as well. Uh, huge responsibility comes with that. But actually on a day-to-day basis, we're managing people, we're influencing people, and therefore we need to get really, really good at understanding people and living those values out that uh, that the organisation is all about. Yeah, and, and you see living out the values. And ag- again, if, um, if senior leaders are not living those values every day and indeed being able to reflect and using that same analogy of the mirror, holding the mirror up to ourselves as senior leaders within the organisation and questioning whether we are actually demonstrating those values. Do we understand how important they are and do we understand how we need to be demonstrating those? Um, because when you when you take on a senior leadership role, which, you know, is a is a big a big privilege I think in any organisation. Um, 
people will look to you more than you probably think around how you demonstrate your values, your behaviour, um, your empathy, your compassion. They will look to you for that. And if they do not see that in the senior leaders of an organisation, I think that that then filters down, potentially. So I think the the values of senior leaders and and being very, very clear about what those are and living them out is so important. Yeah, I think that's so fundamental. And one of the things I used to say to any department that I took over, I'd bring the senior team together and I used to talk about the language that comes out of your mouth. You know, for us at that level, it might just be human language, human conversation. But if we don't choose our words correctly, uh, that language to anybody who might hear it, who is a, a part of our department and part of our team, it might resonate with them very, very badly or very well. And whichever way it goes, they are going to take that away with them. It will, they will infect other people around them, their loved ones, their friends, their families, their other colleagues. Um, and, and that is part and parcel of the leadership shadow that we cast yeah. in any organisation. So all the more reason why we have to live these values out. If that's what we've said the organisation is all about, then the, the more the senior the leader you become, the more you have to live these values out and people need to see that you are walking your talk, essentially. And you remember those, well, I speak from a, a sort of personal um, perspective here, but you remember often the negative leadership experiences. Of course. As as much, if not more than the positive influences around leadership. And in my in my sort of leadership journey, I have definitely um used those negative leadership experiences I have I have witnessed and been subject to to inform how as a leader I will behave uh, in terms of um acknowledging that negative impact that even simple things like use of language can have on others and and it, and it's and it, and it definitely resonates when you have been subject to um a poor leader the impact and damage that can cause is um is huge and i don't th- i don't think people go set about to be bad leaders and I, I really, I really genuinely don't don't think that we have people out there who are determined to be autocrat- autocratic, micromanagers, you know, um, overbearing. I don't think. I think that there are many reasons why it happens. I think most leaders want to do a good job. Some just get lost along the way. I think most leaders want to do a good job. Good job, but I also live uh, with the belief that most people actually want to be decent people, want to do a good job when they go to work. Um, but in order for them to do that, I think they they want to feel valued, appreciated, heard, seen. They want to feel that they've got level of professional judgment, that they're trusted to do the job. Yes. Um, and they want, to, they want to believe. They want to believe in your organisation. They want to trust their leaders. But if we get it wrong as an organisation and we break that chain of trust, that that therein lies the very start of what can be a really really um, detrimental toxic process that we very often embark upon that leads to the kind of cultures uh, that we often hear about that uh, are creating all sorts of problems. I think trust is huge um, in in any leadership relationship. Again, how you reflect in your own experiences here, it can be so damaging and so dysfunctional actually if you don't have that trust-based relationship uh, as a leader 
with the people that you are charged to to lead. And um, it cuts across so many different areas because if you if you can't demonstrate that trust, then perverse behaviours kick in. So there's a tendency for people to be over-reliant on the leader. There's a tendency for uh, micromanagement processes to kick in and they are very destructive. And there's a there's a there's definitely a tendency of people who have a leader demonstrating those traits of micromanagement, lack of trust, lack of empowerment, um, to lose a bit of themselves in the whole process. And they lose confidence, they lose um they lose the, the this appetite that they previously had to go out and do a good job. And if you start doing that, particularly within a profession as impactive as policing, um then again, you create a team, a workforce that are not going to be delivering as effectively as they can for the public. And that's what I always try and bring it back to. When I talk about leadership within policing, I always, always, always align it back to the public service. We, we can't get caught up in the internal. The internal things are, are important and we need to get them right. But we also need to do that with a clear eye on on the public and public service. And that's to me what it all comes back to. And there is something in, 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 in what you've said there, Dave, that just reminded me of another conversation I had only this morning uh, talking to somebody who uh, is heavily involved in DE&I uh, globally. You talked about the impact that we have on people and, uh, you know, how some of these processes and uh, the lack of all the micromanagement, how that makes an individual feel. It's this, some, sometimes it's about the human feelings that we don't factor in at all. And we were talking in the context of, uh, you know, people from within minoritized communities and how it is very, very difficult as someone who has been through either overt or covert discrimination, whether it's absolutely extreme bias or whether it's a microaggression, but the, the feeling that it leaves that individual with, how hard it is to explain that to somebody who is not from that minoritized group. And we both came to the conclusion that the vast majority of leaders, as you quite rightly say, want to be good leaders. Uh, but no matter how good they are as human beings, they will never truly be able to empathise with something that they just can't relate to. And and it's actually very difficult for somebody from a minoritised community to even explain that. What is this What is this pain that I'm going through? What's this emotion, this feeling? And I talked about some of my examples uh, with yourself and how it's every single promotion that I have achieved, there was an element of me thinking that other people are thinking that I only got that because I was brown, no matter how hard I'd worked for that promotion, no matter the fact that I came top second or whatever it might have been, there was always something. And, you know, we often talk about imposter syndrome nowadays. It was yeah. more than imposter syndrome. It's almost a guilt complex that I'd achieved this level because I was a brown person. So these feelings are very, very hard to explain, very hard. And, and, and we only talked about it because you, you gave us, gave me an example of where you'd had a conversation. And I'm so pleased you did because I've never actually talked about that to anybody. It was a quite cathartic moment for me when I, when I explained my thoughts and how I felt after when I should have been celebrating uh, an achievement, I actually felt that 
who is who is going to be the first person to say to me, you got that because of your brand? Because I've had like some of my best friends saying that to me. So this is the sort of dichotomy that we live within, you know, where we can't truly explain it. Others can't truly understand it. But we all know that we need to do something about it. So, you know, in policing, we often t- talk about the recruitment, retention and progression element. Um, and often progression is something that we don't even think about because we're so focused on recruitment more than often not that even the retention we don't focus in on. So, uh, you know, in my time in policing and, and now I've worked with so many other organisations they tend always to think about, let's get as many minoritized communities into our organization because we want to be represented. But then what they don't realize is representation actually means that it needs to be there throughout the entirety of the organization. But because they haven't done any work around the retention element and the progression element, you tend to have, a bit like in the NHS, you tend to have most of your diverse workforce at the very front end of your organization. And it peters out very, very quickly up to the senior levels. I'm encouraged by something that you'd said that uh, the police service is doing right now. Well, actually, it's not just the police. It's specifically the the superintendent's association, an association that I was very proud to have been a member of and always saw uh, as being a very forward-thinking organisation. But you're doing some work there, aren't you, to increase the number of minoritised, underrepresented staff coming into the superintending ranks. Do you want to just talk about what you're doing there? There's a lot to unpack in what you've just said. Um, <laughs> I, I've just gone off on one, haven't I? No, no. But, uh, you this know, is we, your we, fault, by the way, David. You had that long conversation when we started me off. <laughs> well, we talked earlier, didn't we? But but um, before I talk about the super the Superintendents Association scheme that I'm, that I'm involved in, um, something you said about, you know, um, leaders who want to try and do the best, and I think that is right, um, they can't always understand what it's like from underrepresented groups to mm. develop progress within the service. My challenge to that would be, well, we need to make our business to understand um, and do better and make some change um, in that respect. So I think that comes back to a bit of personal ownership and accountability that if we understand that issue, then we need to do our best to, um, as much as we can, to understand. Uh, because it, you're not going to make changes unless you really take a step back, take the time to listen and understand. Yeah. Okay, so the, just to set the scene a little Absolutely. bit. So in that regard, the, the Superintendents Association, which you were a member of and, and I am a member of, um, launched a programme probably about two years ago now, uh, termed the Future Supers Programme. And what that aims to do is um, provide uh, coaching support from existing superintendents and chief superintendents to those from underrepresented groups within the service who are aspiring to get into the superintending ranks. And when I I saw the advert come out from the association seeking um, volunteer coaches, then to me, um, it was a bit of a it was a bit of an obvious thing to volunteer for. It was a bit of a no-brainer. But this is something I really want to do. Um, my motivations for doing it were really at, at the start was uh, I've always been interested in coaching and mentoring and helping people develop their career. And I thought, well, here's a, here's a good opportunity to try and make a bit of a difference and give a little bit back. That's the aspiration. What I have found um, 
in the 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 people that I'm working with and I coach is that through those coaching conversations and and relationships, I have personally learned an awful lot. So the the benefit for me as a as a leader in the police service has been to understand firsthand some of those barriers, some of those challenges that officers from underrepresented and minoritized groups encounter. And um, what strongly resonated with me was in my first coaching session with an officer who was about to embark on a promotion process. She said to me, and I, I, I actually still get, and we spoke about this earlier, I, I, I actually still get a little bit emotional talking about it. And what the officer said was, well, of course, I'm working really hard to get through the process. But I know if I get through the process, it won't be long before someone says, oh, well, of course you got through because you're you're black. And that absolutely floored me in terms of hearing that firsthand from someone who's striving to go through and working really hard to go through a promotion process, what should be an awesome achievement if you get through it. But actually the thought process was that. And I I was really saddened by that. And what it what it told me is that there's an awful lot more we need to do. So when you see the Casey report coming out, I was I was astonished to see some of the the, the the findings, quite frankly, even although I think we were all bracing for impact and reflecting back to, you know, Stephen Lawrence and McPherson and some of the other things that have come out in between times, I thought, how far have we actually come? And and it's quite a so it's quite a sobering it was quite a sobering moment. And here's the other thing, uh, Dave, that there is also a massive impact on those from not minoritized communities, from the majority, if you like, um, other members of the police service who have just, it's almost like a tidal wave, a tsunami um, across them. And, you know, we're already in policing going through some really difficult times with attrition, you know, uh, the paying conditions uh, argument, the increased workloads that officers are having to experience right now. We've had research done by the Police Federation that that is talking about one in five police officers are looking at leaving the police service in the next two years. And I get approached a lot by police officers either leaving or have left uh, to, to, to help them transition into the big wide world. The Casey report seems to be yet another thing that's going to hit them and impact upon them. And is this going to be something that's going to increase re- attrition potentially in the police service? Are we going to have a diffi- more difficult time recruiting quality people into the police service? There's, so there's a there's a huge sort of causal impact, line of impact that can go from the from this one document across the whole of the police service. And and I have to stress again that this, if it's about the police service, it's it's also about society. Because this is not just limited to the police service. So 
what what is it that we need to do across all organizations you know what is a challenge for leaders right now well you're right i mean it's it, it, although the the Casey report is specifically about policing and actually specifically about the Met as an organisation, um, going back to the sort of Pelian principles of the police of the public and the public of the police, you have to say that that is sadly, um, yes, there will be elements of it which are peculiar to police or organisational culture, but you also have to say that that has to be somewhat reflective of society in a much wider sense. So I would I would agree with that point. Um what what worries me and keeps me awake at night is that this tsunami of negativity that has hit the police service, particularly I think over the last two, three years, without a doubt has an impact on um well being on morale, on yes, attracting you know quality recruits into the service, and on retention, and all those factors are definitely not helped by the publication of the Casey report and and the media reporting that goes alongside it. Now, I'm not I'm not going to sit here and be critical of the media. The media have a job to do. But as a serving police officer, it feels kind of relentless. And um, and that's difficult. That's difficult for serving, serving members of the police family. As to what we do about it, um, I think we simultaneously need to do two things. We need to show that we are absolutely serious about reflecting on the report that the service are going to make those improvements and changes and be ruthless about rooting out the bad people and, and getting rid of them. And it needs to have that absolute commitment and stamina to do that. What we have seen in previous years, and I, I reference McPherson, but there have been there have been others, is that we we have a we have a flurry of activity. It's all pretty frenetic and lots of things get done and new departments get set up and <sighs> But what we don't seem to have, in in my view, is the the organisational stamina to keep going. I think there's two things for me. One is you're absolutely right. I think one is the stamina, and you know we only have to look at George Floyd only a few years ago, where there was this incredible flurry of activity, not just in the police service, because I now get to, uh, I'm in a privileged position to work with a lot of organisations, and I've seen this happening in so many, where there's this incredible flurry of activity. I got engaged with so many organisations because they wanted me in to do some work around DEI, and then it just sort of peters out. And there's two reasons for me. One is this organisational stamina, because it takes work. It takes hard work. And of course, it's going to take hard work to if you're going to drive about a, an environmental change in your organisation. But the second thing is it's about leadership courage. And, and when I say leadership courage, it, it is about recognising for any leader, uh, like with most chief officers of any organisation, uh, will be on some sort of a level of a contract four, five years, etc. They have to look beyond the four or five years that they're going to be there. They need to be thinking about legacy uh, and, and the, the, the organisation that they're going to create going forward. When they leave, what kind of an organisation will it be? I think that's that's sort of the crux of the, 
the matter for me. How many leaders are thinking beyond that? And actually, this goes right back into the government as well. How many times is the government um, actually thinking about going beyond the four or five years that they might be in power? You know, and that for me is the stamina and the leadership courage that you're talking about. That's a really good point um, about legacy and about the impact, particularly senior and especially chief officers need to be thinking about. So I think the second bit, other other than the criticality of having had the mirror held up to us again and seeing what's on the other side to react to the challenges posed by Casey and do it swiftly and and have that endurance and stamina. I think the second thing is to have the leadership qualities at all level, but particularly as you reference the senior and chief officer ranks to endure and keep those keep those mechanisms moving forward rather than have those stick and plaster stick and plaster approach that we've seen in others uh, other as a result of other reviews um, uh, and uh, reports and I think senior leaders and chief officers in particular are in that privileged position where they actually can use their role and influence to do that and set that culture and have that organisational and personal commitment. But all the while we're doing that, we need to be looking after the vast majority of good people in the organisation who come to work every day to do a good job. We need to be rewarding and recognising. We need to, to recognise the impact that all this has on people who just want to come to work do a good job, look after people, show that empathy, compassion, deal with those that need to be dealt with in terms of criminality. And policing is a complex business now. I mean, 30 years when I joined the police, it was definitely the crime-fighting mission. You would have been the same. You know, It was all about lock, lock up the bad people, look after the good people, do it in a very much a silo without working with anyone else. Partnerships weren't a big thing then. Police officers now, my goodness, they are expected to be so skilled in so many different areas and fighting crime is, is only one of those. But we want our police officers to be compassionate, empathetic and kind in their approach to victims, vulnerable people, witnesses and therefore, I think we really need to be cognizant of how tough a time this is for policing. Whilst acknowledging the issues and the problems and challenges, we do need to have an eye on officer well-being and making sure that officers feel supported. And that is the job of leaders and politicians and everyone else involved in policing PCCs to make sure that we've got that message loud and clear to the vast majority. A collective responsibility of all all of those involved in the leadership of policing, um, there are two big issues here. One is about creating that inclusive environment where everyone does feel psychologically safe, valued, appreciated, heard and seen. Um, but we need to extend that also to the vast majority of unspoken of, you know, people that we don't even mention, the 130,000 cops or whatever the number is nowadays that are out there in, you know, policing the streets of the United Kingdom, um, we need to understand that the vast majority of them are really good, decent people 
who are seeing this as a vocation and they are committed to keeping our streets safe. And we need to think about the impact that this these few people are having on all of these greater number uh, of people. David, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And uh, if I can support you in your work in any way, then you only have to shout out. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.